if you are someone who's just kind of selling your time, like as an extra pair of hands, you're a very good marketer, you're a very good copywriter, and you're saying, I can write whatever you need me to write for you, but you don't have, you're not developing your own signature solutions, your own signature uh, methodologies or frameworks, then you'll probably have some very weak positioning. People are going to have you talk about this all the time, you know, the ability to be referable and for people to kind of understand, you know, exactly what you do and who you do it for. And so if you are using your expertise to create really strong packages, and that helps uh, cement your positioning in, in the marketplace. Hello, hello. Welcome to Soloist Women, where we're all about turning your expertise into wealth and impact. I'm Rochelle Moulton, and today I'm here with Erin Austin, who, in my opinion, is the maven for female founders of expertise firms who want to build scalable IP-based revenue streams. Erin, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Rochelle. Oh, I'm excited. So one of the many reasons that I'm so excited to have you on the show is you have this 100% clear-eyed view on what it takes to scale an expertise business using your intellectual property. And plus, kind of like as a bonus, I'd really love for our listeners to hear how you've gotten to this place. Because in my head, you're the poster child for carving out the life you want in the place you want to be. So I want to dig into that a little bit too. Well, thank you. Well, I do kind of describe myself as my own avatar as a female founder of an expertise-based business who has taken that journey from having, you know, unscalable hourly-based business to creating one that is expertise-based, creating intellectual property, creating a new revenue streams that decouple my income from my time. That is why I'm here and to help other women do that. And so just a teeny bit of my backstory is I've been, you know, working with intellectual property based corporations, large corporations, my entire career. And then I got to a point where I wanted to not just help big companies get bigger, but to help women, especially uh, women who have expertise-based businesses. Maybe they are lifestyle businesses, but they have a mission and a purpose. They want to do more for their families, for their communities, to help them increase not just their income, but hopefully to build wealth with their businesses as well. Um, you know, I like to say that wealth in the hands of women can change the world. And so helping, Amen. yeah, you know, helping women build wealth because, you know, at the end of the day, wealth, you know, has influence in this world. And so if we want to spread more of that wealth around, we need to help more people get access to the tools of wealth, which is ownership of assets. Well, Erin, in all the time I've known you, I don't think I've ever asked you this question. What actually made you decide to start your own business? Because, I mean, you worked for some very top names in America. Yeah, well, it really was moving to the middle of nowhere, frankly, and uh, having a kid. So I was at the front end of being able to work remotely when I first moved to, I live in a the exurbs of Washington, D.C., which at the time I had... Uh, dial up. <laughs> and I was able to work with my former clients doing work with them. At the time, I was still doing a lot of film work. And I had one of my old clients had a film library that they wanted me to look at. 
And it was easier for them to download the documents, put them on a CD and mail them to me than for me mm-hmm. to try to do that remotely. Over time, I've been able to work from home while raising my kid out here. And so fortunately, I've, I've been able to have the best of both worlds of working with my large clients and working remotely, um, working for myself as well. I guess the other thing that I know from other conversations we've had is that you have really for a long time walked this intersection between law and business, right? You're trained as a lawyer, but you've been in business almost forever. So can you talk us through what it was like entering the consulting space and then finding your niche with helping women experts scale? Yeah, it took me a little bit. I mean, you know, I get I've been practicing law for 30 years, working with large corporations and having to to kind of do the type of business development that's required to work with, you know, a larger audience and one that's different from the one that I'd worked with traditionally um, has been some work for me to learn how to make sure I'm showing up in the places where my audience is, learning how to stop with the legal speak, you know, the the large corporations (laughs) that I work with, I mean, they all totally get it. They have legal departments. They, you know, their assets are intellectual property. They love lawyers, frankly, versus uh, a different population, which might be afraid of lawyers, might think that they're inaccessible or not understandable. And so being accessible and understandable and having materials that are implementable has been a real process for me and one that I really enjoyed. Like I found that people tell me I'm pretty good at translating the legalese into things that um, make sense and that are applicable. I love a good analogy. I love a good graphic. (laughs) Yeah. So so to me, that's part of the joy is being an educator along with being a lawyer. Awesome. Awesome. So one of the questions I've been asking guess is about revenue. So how long did it take you to hit your first like 100,000 after you went out on your own? Like, was it really fast because of your legal background or did it take a while? Yeah, it did. I mean, because I just kind of flipped from being in-house to being an outside resource. And so it did not, I mean, that was my first year, frankly, of, you know, doing retainer work or doing flat fee work. And that is just, you know, a function of, yeah, where I was coming from. And did you plateau or did you find that, you know, since then, or do you find that you have kind of a steady climb over time? Just curious. Yeah, and there was some plateau, mostly because, you know, I had whale clients for a very long time. And I, I, I'll say I still have one. And so you, and there's a comfort with having those whale clients yeah. so long as they s- stick around, right? But it makes you a little bit lazy. And I was, you know, very comfortable. And so I definitely plateaued. And so it was on me to kind of find that fire, just do business development as I'm working with this new audience when you have, uh, when you still have those whale clients, but yeah. 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 Well, you know, you can make a wonderful business with whale clients, right? As long as you don't just have one, you know, you've got three or maybe four or five. I think any more than that's probably not a whale, but so let's get down to scaling our expertise businesses, a subject I know you and I both love to talk about. And I really want to talk about how we can scale, even if we want to stay solo and, I was looking at your website before uh, before we talked, and I, I just want to read what you said on there. 
If the only way you make money is you providing custom services, your score is zero out of eight in the scalability game. And, and then you go through, you know, a, basically eight different points in the game. So can you walk us through the business problems that we create for ourselves when we focus only on custom services? Yeah, absolutely. And these are all indications that we aren't taking advantage of our expertise and turning it into either assets that we can use internally to become more efficient or perhaps even assets that we can sell externally. Mm. So the issues that are the symptoms that you have a problem, if you're not uh, effectively using utilizing your expertise as an asset are one, you know, you have a client concentration problem. I mean, there are only so many clients that you can serve at one time, you know, whether or not you want to increase your revenue through the addition of employees. And let's just say we were the soloist women and we're all, we right. all want to stay soloists, but there are ways that we can use our expertise to create efficiencies in our business so that one, you know, maybe you have that will client problem. And so you can handle more clients when you build efficiencies into your business through standards and procedures, through templates, through models, so that it helps you be more efficient. Other ways that helps you perhaps create other offerings that you can provide at different price points. So maybe, you know, you're only mm -hmm. doing very custom services. Maybe you add some productized services to the mix too, because you have developed a specialty, you know, so that kind of signature solution that you have productized that you can deliver more efficiently at a different price point. And so that would also appeal to a different client as well. Other ways you might have problems is, you know, when you have client concentration problem, you usually have a revenue concentration problem. So you just have that one type of revenue. In this case, we're talking about one-on-one -on -one services. And so when you are packaging your intellectual property, packaging your expertise into intellectual property assets, then you can create new revenue streams off of that, not just one-on-one -on -one services, but also some leverage services that decouple your income from your time, such as, you know, maybe workshops or digital products. Mm -hmm. Another problem will be, you know, the earner concentration, and that's just you, you know, it's only you out there. If you're not delivering services, there's no money coming in. No passive and, revenue. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one of the ways to create, you know, more earners in your business is either through, you know, effective use of employees, if that's one way you want to go, but also using contractors as well. There are people who do workshops and some of them are doing them on their own. They're traveling, you know, if they're doing them in person, they're traveling around the country to deliver those workshops. If you're able to systematize your workshops and document them, then you're able to engage facilitators on a subcontractor basis so that there's somebody else delivering your work but you're getting paid for it without you going on the road or out that without that taking your time personally. Mm -hmm. Then the revenue ceiling problem, you know, I like to say, unless you're Tony Robbins, you know, there's only so much you can charge for a private coaching session. Right. And mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, even making a very good hourly rate, there's still a ceiling on your hourly rate. And so if you haven't figured out a way to, again, to decouple your income from your time, then you will hit that revenue ceiling. 
I, I like to talk about, you know, the licensing process of, you know, uh, having your expertise packaged in a way that someone else can deliver it, you know, whether it is through a facilitator, like we mentioned earlier, or perhaps it's something that a client could license directly for you. If we go back to that workshop model and you have been the facilitator for your clients, they may have someone in-house that can be the facilitator. And mm -hmm. so you license your workshop to them and then you are getting paid a license fee for them to deliver it internally using their own resources. Train the trainer. Yeah, train the trainer yeah. model. Yeah. Other symptom is that inconsistent cash flow. You have that feast or famine cycle when you're doing, you know, high ticket, high touch custom services, those can have very long sales cycles. So you're, you know, you're working, working, working to get the sale. And, uh, and then when you get it, then you have all the work, then you're completely overwhelmed by the work. So you're not doing anything else until, you know, the engagement's over, then you look up, okay, and now I got to go do it all again. And um, I guess it's like kind of, uh, what is it, the hunting, like big game hunting, right? Yeah. Um, where you, you go, you feast, and then once you're out of meat, you got to go back out there and <laughs> bring, bring down another, another beast. But when we you know, set up multiple revenue streams, we have one that is not necessarily passive, but one that's perhaps recurring, such as, you know, maybe you have resources that you can sell subscriptions to, or maybe you have a community that you can sell subscriptions to, or other types of assets that can be offered on a recurring basis so that you can even out your cash flow. Another symptom would be your weak positioning. Like if you are someone who's just kind of selling your time, like as an extra pair of hands, you're a very good marketer, you're a very good copywriter, and you're saying, I can write whatever you need me to write for you, but you don't have, you're not developing your own signature solutions, your own signature uh, methodologies or frameworks. Then you'll probably have some very weak positioning. People are going to have you talk about this all the time, you know, the ability to be referable and for people to kind of understand, you know, exactly what you do and who you do it for. And so if you are using your expertise to create really strong packages, and that helps uh, cement your positioning in, in the marketplace. And makes you worth more in the eyes of the market. Absolutely. Speaking of which, you know, stagnant profitability would be one. Oh, there's <laughs> yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, one, you know, you're, it depresses what you can you can charge, right? But also, if you're starting from scratch with every engagement, then how do you get the benefit of efficiencies? How do you get the benefits of systemizing your services? How do you get the benefit of having templates and models that you're starting from? When you aren't billing by the hour, you know, the more efficient you get, the more profitable that same service becomes. And so that means, you know, not just having your expertise in your head, but actually creating systems from it. And they can also become more profitable when you lower the cost of the resources, you know, you are the most expensive resource in your business. You know, can you use less expensive resources such as contractors or even technology, maybe even if you understand like where the where the elements are that you might be able to plug less expensive resources in. And then the last one is the impact 
ceiling. I mean, we all got into this business because there's something that we wanted. There's some change we wanted to bring to the world. You know, for me, it's helping women create more wealth. And I can only help so many women on a one-on-one basis. I like working with people on one-on-one basis, and I do work with people on a one-on-one basis, but there will be only so many people that I can help if I don't also create other resources that can be delivered without me. So I will, you know, in the future, you know, have (laughs) some uh, leverageable income streams that would include courses and group programs and books. Of course, podcasting is one of the ways I also help people. That's not obviously it's a free resource, but these are all ways that we increase our impact as well. Well, and I don't want to denigrate the free resources because that is a way that I think it was Jill Conrath said that, you know, I charge the people who can afford it a lot and I give away a ton for free. So there's there's a way to look at that. And sometimes the way we, we develop our products and services comes from something that we did for free. And then we realize that there's some legs to it that we can monetize. Yeah. And I imagine, I mean, this is something that I struggle with, you know, because I, I like to give away information for free and I do. And, uh, but you always wonder like, where's the limit of free (laughs) versus what I should charge for. But I've heard that, you know, if, if it's something that you wonder you should, whether or not you should be charging for it, that's the right thing to be giving away for free. Like for really kind of being generous with your audience. So I do like to do that. Yeah, generous is good. So I love how you've positioned this because I think that for those of us who've done lots of one-to-one work, whether it was custom or following a particular model, what you're really saying is that there is room. There is room to grow. And by grow, I mean revenue. There's room to monetize. So talk to me about how does intellectual property fit into all this? And maybe we should start with a definition of intellectual property. Yeah, well, intellectual property is the bucket of rights that are protected via our intellectual property laws, kind of circular, but basically the main buckets are copyrights, trademarks, patents, and trade secrets. And so there are a number of kind of intangibles that we have, such as our reputation, such as our SOPs, that are important part of how we express our expertise. And some of it can be protected through intellectual property laws. And those provide exclusive rights to use whatever that asset is. If it's under copyrights, exclusive right to use that literary work or that song or that painting, you have exclusive rights to copying it, selling it, performing it, if it's a script or music, um, distributing it, that means something, providing something for sale. So we have exclusive rights, exclusive copyrights to exploit that work. Uh, You know, patents protect inventions, trademarks protect the origin of a good or service. So that tells the world, if I have something from McDonald's, nobody else can pretend to be McDonald's and that protects the source of that good or service. And then trade secrets are those things that we protect by keeping them secret. Literally, you don't register your trade secrets like the others. And when we protect those, then the law actually protects them as an asset, not just as a contract right with your NDA. And so, Mm -hmm. but that is a smaller group of assets than the broader group of things like positioning, 
that also are an important part of our expertise and the value that we bring to the market. And so I mean, I just the other day uh, I had a newsletter piece. Uh, that's also my blog, by the way, about you know, how to protect our ideas. And so a lot of people think about our ideas as something that's very valuable. And it is. However, how do you protect an idea? How do you profit from it? How do you prevent other people from using your ideas? And so if we want to equate our expertise with you know, how we provide value with our ideas, then there are a couple of things that we can do. Like one, we have the statutory protections that we get through intellectual property laws. So statutory means by statute, by law. So if we have our expertise expressed in a way that is protectable by intellectual property laws, then we have the statutory protections. The things that I mentioned that you have exclusive, you basically have a legal monopoly. So IP law gives you a legal monopoly to exploit your work but not everything will fall into that bucket, such as our reputation, things like that. So, and the other way that we protect our expertise is through our contracts. And so Mm -hmm. things that are protectable by IP law, like our ideas, for instance, because you have to have something in tangible form, we can't just protect our ideas by intellectual property law, we protect it by contract. So that is using our NDAs so that if we're sharing our ideas in a way that's not yet protectable by intellectual property law, we protect them by entering NDAs with people so that other people aren't using our ideas for their own purposes and aren't publicizing them. Mm -hmm. Um, We protect them with our services agreements. So when we are working with our clients and part of the value we provide to them will include some of our original ideas, some of our expertise, some of the materials that we've created before our engagement. And we want to make sure when we're entering those agreements that we aren't assigning rights to our original ideas to them. So we do need to be mindful of those. When we're using subcontractors and we are having them help us develop some of our ideas, because sometimes we will need other people's input for these things. Mm -hmm. And we want to make sure that we are getting all the rights that we need from our subcontractors when we are engaging them to help us develop some of our ideas, as well as making sure that they aren't using them without us making sure that anything they deliver to us is original and then they're not getting it, you know, from AI, which is a whole different thing, but, you know, making sure that what they're delivering to us is original. Those are all important elements of making sure that our, our intellectual property is clean for lack of a better word, is Mm -hmm. that having those contracts make sure that we own all the rights in our intellectual property and that they aren't infringing a third parties. Question. I don't want to take us, down a rabbit hole, but I'm just curious. So as a business owner in the expertise space, let's say you've got um, big corporate clients, can a sort of specialized business lawyer help with those? Or like, when does it make sense to bring in an IP specialist as a business owner? Because I've seen how tricky some of these contracts can be, especially if you're getting something from your Fortune 500 client and they want you to sign sort of their standard deal. Yeah. 
the Fortune 500 client will definitely have their their services agreements or vendor agreement, they might call it, or supplier agreement that they want everyone to sign, whether you're, you know, providing custom marketing materials or you're, you know, coding uh, app for them or, or you're, frankly, maybe even to cleaning their offices even. And so a lot of times we do need to be mindful of the intellectual property provisions in there. They will all have very client favorable provisions in there. And most lawyers that are familiar with commercial transactions would be familiar with the provisions in those agreements and would be able to negotiate those on your behalf. The Super specialized IP lawyers are mostly on the patent end, you know, because mm. because of the nature of 21st century business is that almost all of our corporate transactions, our commercial transactions are IP related. And uh, and so, you know, is it 90 percent of the uh, gross domestic product in the U.S. I think is IP related. And so almost all commercial transactions are going to involve intellectual property. And so any a lawyer with a robust uh, commercial transactions practice can help you. If you yourself need to protect uh, intellectual property, there are a number of specialists. There's a number of you know trademark specialists you'll see who their entire practice is just helping you get your trademarks. Certainly, Patents or attorneys are always specialists. Trade secrets in the form of NDAs is a pretty common part of commercial transactions practice as well. But if you have something that's super secret, you know, like you are a pharmaceutical company and you're at the, you know, you're protecting your trade secrets in anticipation of a patent, then you definitely want to be with a patent lawyer for something like that. But for most of us, most of the people listening to this who are you know, experts who provide professional services or creative services to corporate um, clients, your main issues are going to be protecting your copyrightable materials, which would be, you know, your original, your workshop materials, your templates and frameworks that you have. And those are all matters for copyright. And those can be protected. You know, copyright is, is protected at the moment you create it. If it's original, um, and it's created by human. <laughs> it is protectable <laughs> at the time it's created, but you do want to register it if you want to protect it or enforce it against an infringer. It has to be registered to enforce it against an infringer. So, but that would be something that a commercial transactions lawyer can help you with as well. So, actually, I want to hit that one just a little bit more on that you have to register copyrights because, it, as an example, like we all put on our website, we put, you know, copyright with a year. We usually update it every year. Yep. We might put a copyright on a downloadable thing that we have on our website. So, what should listeners be doing if they're doing that? Like, is that is that registration? I'm hearing that that is not from what you said. That is not registration. So again, copyright attaches at the moment of creation. There is no registration requirement for copyright to attach to the work as soon as it is created. We do want to put that copyright symbol with the year of creation and your name, whoever is claiming the copyright in it, if it's you or your your LLC or your, your corporation, 
You want to have that on there, not because it's a requirement for to have copyright protection, but because it puts the world on notice that you are claiming copyright protection. And so if somebody does want to contact the owner for they want to license it or they want to use it for some reason, they can find you and they mm-hmm. can uh, ask for permission. For as far as registration, I encourage registration for things that are your direct revenue makers. So if you have a workshop, if you have a book, you have a course, you have something that you are distributing to the public, I want you to register that. And the reason for that is that you are required to have it registered with the U.S. Copyright Office if you want to enforce your rights mm-hmm. against a third party uh, infringer. And so you can't go to court and say and sue someone because they stole your materials unless it's been registered in the Copyright Office. And if it is registered before you publish it, you have um, some additional protections than if you register it later after they've started infringing. So to get ahead of it, you would register it when it's something that you is important enough that you would hire some, if you'd hire a lawyer to enforce it, then that's the thing that you want to make sure you have registered. You know, you're not going to hire a lawyer because somebody, you know, stole one of your blog posts, right? Right. But you are going to sue someone if they steal your workshop or steal your course or, you mm-hmm. know, or they, you know, dupe your entire website, which unfortunately happens as well. But Yeah. <laughs> I've seen that happen to me. Yes. I've never seen it, but I've heard of it. (laughs) Yeah. It was very interesting. So when you think kind of bigger picture, like how do we decide which ideas we should protect and nurture? And you just walked through why workshops, books, courses are so important, but are there any other criteria that we should be using when we think about like, what do we really want to protect? And I use the word nurture really intentionally because I think of it as something that is not a one-off, but something that we're going to keep using in our business going forward. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, because it is not that copyright uh, registration is expensive because it's not unlike trademarks, which requires a, 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 you know, four-figure investment. You know, you can register a copyright. You can do that online, and it can be a, a DIY. If if you have the patience to do that, you can do that as a DIY process. But we want to register those things that do have kind of an evergreen value in your business, and looking at it as an inventory. I, I you know, I liked it look at intellectual property and and the assets in our our expertise-based business in terms of, you know, what is a finished good inventory piece versus what is raw material versus what is works in progress. And the finished goods, you know, I think of as those things that are publicly available, that are important part of your reputation and important part of how you create value for your clients and the things that a third party would find value in as mm-hmm. well if they were to take it. And so that would be kind of your very big thought leadership pieces like your books and your courses. And so those I would certainly encourage people to have registered. You know, things that are kind of come and go. I mean, is our, our websites tend to be, you know, something that is frequently updated and changing. I mean, even those of us who have, you know, back catalogs of things, they stay there, but are they still 
as timely as they were when we published them originally. Um, So most people do not register their websites unless it is something that, you know, in and of itself is a revenue generator as opposed to a place where we add our thoughts as they develop. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it is, it will depend on the nature of your business and how you create value for your clients. But yeah, the value creators, either for you or for your clients, are probably the things you want to start with. Got it. Got it. That's really helpful, Erin. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking I have some work to do when we're done. So I guess another question I have is about what you refer to as that signature program. And I know a lot of people talk about this, but you know, how do we get to that signature program? Because you know, when I was listening to your eight different kinds of problems that are created. One of the things that really struck me is some of these are a function of when you first start your business and you're figuring things out. So everything's custom because everything's new because you're not specializing even a little bit. It's if somebody says they want you, you say, yes, here I am. Here's my custom proposal. But at some point, you know, there's some advantages, some of which you've talked about in getting to that signature program. How do you see people getting there on a reasonable trajectory versus the one that seems kind of twisty and crooked for a lot of people. Crooked in the sense that it's not straight, not not illegal. Yeah. I mean, I think, first of all, I encourage people to have their own original ideas. And so let's say you you start and let's use the, the copywriter example. And anyone who comes to you, they need copywriting and and you can do that for them. But at some point you're going to notice patterns, you know, with when you have enough clients in a certain area, you'll notice that, oh, you know, real, maybe, you know, realtors, they all seem to have like some issue regarding uh, how to make them feel more approachable and not too salesy. And you developed, and you developed a way of expressing that, that, and you get uh, continue to hone in on that and creating your own ideas around like how do I um, help them express you know down homeness <laughs> from lack of better word down home and you'll develop kind of realtor speak right and that will be your own like maybe you started with a certification program I assume there's a copywriting certification program and uh, but then you start to drill down on your specific audience and your specific success that you've had with that audience and you continue to develop your own original ideas because if you want to develop develop processes that would eventually be something that you'll be able to decouple from your own work. It has to be original to you. It has to be something that you own. So it can't be something that you got from a certification program. It can't be something that you got from your former employer. It can't be something that you got off the internet. It has to be something that's original to you. And so start thinking about what your own personal spin you can put on either based on your niche or based on your specialization that you go from the general to the more specific to the signature kind of solution framework um, language that really speaks to your specific audience that you can then kind of develop something that's just yours and that you can own and prevent other people from using Mm. um, unless they come to you for permission. Love it. So Erin, I think just one more question, which is if you could go back 
to who you were when you first started your business, like what's the one thing you would advise her to do? Oh my goodness. I would have advised her to start working on developing my own signature solutions then. I mean, you know, I, I'm certainly not going to be the first lawyer, or the last lawyer who um, just sells her time, uh, you know, very specific. I mean, I was very specific about the type of work that I would work on. I've always been very good about protecting, like, you know, I'm not a litigator. I'm not, you know, working on your manufacturing stuff. I'm not, you know, it's always been kind of the intellectual property driven, you know, film, marketing, publishing, research area, um, and always on commercial transactions. But I was still just selling my time mm -hmm. and working on more productized services. I wish I'd done that much earlier, for sure. Oh, I hear you. My hand's raised. You can't see it, but it is. Um, <laughs> so before we sign off, and we'll put these in the show notes, but where can listeners go to learn more about you and your work and, and mention your podcast too? It's awesome. Well, my podcast is Hourly to Exit, where we talk about the journey from the unsustainable hourly business model and evolving into a sustainable, scalable, and hopefully someday saleable business so that the business is ready to exit when uh, you're ready to move on. And so you can find that at all every, everywhere you listen to a podcast. My website is Think Beyond IP, and there um, I offer my services and resources uh, to help experts, you know, protect their expertise so they can profit from it. And, um, and yeah, and I'm really excited about a new offer where I am going to literally help people copyright their expertise. And so I'd love to, you know, have you come check it out. Awesome. Well, Aaron, thank you so much. I just love how you translate all of this into business language for we non-lawyers to learn more about what we can do to protect our expertise and our assets. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. So that's it for this episode. I hope you'll join us next time for Soloist Women. Bye-bye.